Hello everyone, my name is Olivia Sabates and welcome to my podcast. I'm currently an intern at Power in Place, which promotes women in politics. At Power in Place, we encourage political involvement for young women through portraits, narratives, stories, and photos. In this particular podcast, I will be exploring the topic of immigration to the United States through articles, debates, interviews, and other podcasts. I hope you enjoy. The wonderful intro and outro music that I used is from a website called blue.sessions.com. It's called Molly Molly and it's by an artist called Barstool. So that is where you'll be hearing the music today and I hope you enjoy this podcast. A quick side note that some of the articles and information that I read to you about are subject to change here within the year, here within the decade. It just depends on our political administration and other factors as well. So just keep that in mind as you listen to this podcast. Thank you. The first documentary that I want to explore is Which Way Home, directed by Rebecca Camisa. This documentary is about a group of young, unaccompanied minors traveling from Central America to the United States on a Mexican freight train called La Bestia. The camera crew followed a group of children and teenagers on their journey to the United States. This heartfelt documentary begs the question, why are these kids barely 13 years old, yet traveling by themselves, risking injury and death just to come to the United States? It makes you wonder, what's their family like? What is their home like? These are some of the questions that we will unpack today. To emphasize the danger in coming to the United States on La Bestia or crossing the border illegally, one patrol officer at the beginning of this documentary basically described the normality of seeing floating bodies in the rivers, children included who have perished trying to cross the border. This encounter with the patrol officer was the introduction to what would be an eye-opening documentary to real-life grief and real-life dreams of immigrants coming here to the United States. At the beginning of the documentary, the camera crew began by following two friends, Kevin and Fito, both from Honduras with big dreams of reaching the United States. That was a snippet of Kevin talking in the documentary about his family back in Honduras. His mom sells empanadas for a living, and he's basically talking about how he doesn't want to think about her because if he thinks about his mother, he'll start to cry. And he says that his relationship with his stepfather is not the best. His stepfather constantly reminds him that he is not his true son. And so instead, Kevin decided to leave his home to try to make a better living in the United States to help his mother back home. To Kevin, his mother is the most important figure in his life, and his hopes is to complete his journey to the United States to make a better life for himself so he can better the life of his mother. Throughout this documentary, the camera crew interviewed numerous minors on their journey to the United States, but one in particular that caught my attention 
was just a 10-year-old named Jose from El Salvador. Now, he was detained on his journey to the United States and Mexico and taken to Tapachula Detention Center, where he talked to Gabriela Contino, who worked for Mexican immigration. Now, this little boy had not seen his family in three years. Can you imagine that? He is barely 10 years old and he hasn't seen his family in three years. His parents paid a coyote to help him on his journey to the United States, but that coyote ended up abandoning him in times of trouble. So the rest of his family are supposedly here in the United States when Jose is by himself alone in a detention center in Mexico. So not only has he not seen them in three years, but they're supposedly in New York without him and he has no way of reaching them because he does not have their phone number. Now this is just one of numerous similar cases in which there is a minor coming here in hopes of a better future in the United States of America. Now with this comes danger, it comes with separation of your family, of your friends, and it comes with the danger of potentially harming your own life as well. According to this documentary, 100,000 children enter the U.S. illegally every year. Well, it, it's, it's sad. It's sad to find a child that's been left in the hands of a smuggler, you know, because we found children that have been raped, male kids that have been raped by their own smugglers and then abandoned. So we find them walking in a desert, you know, near roads usually, uh, violated. You know, I have personally seen dead children in the desert. And in 99% of the cases, they were abandoned. Here's a six-year-old kid, doesn't know anything about life. His parents make that decision to bring him to the United States, place him in the hands of some person they don't even know. Some person that will get drunk, use drugs, smuggles dope. And that's the person that they give their kid to. They shouldn't be surprised if their kid never makes it. That was a snippet from an, another patrol officer about how he has witnessed these children crossing the border and what can potentially happen to them as they embark on this dangerous journey to the United States for a better future for themselves and for their family as well. A particular excerpt from this documentary really stood out to me, and it was when talking to a lady named Gloria, who left her daughter Esperalda um, when she was just one and didn't see her until she was 13 years old in hopes of getting a better future for herself and for her child. But what really stood out to me was she said, not only do you have the possibility of endangering your life in trying to better your future, but you also never recover the time that you've lost. And that's time that you could have been spending with your loved ones, with your children. And that's kind of a love that is so dear and so deep. And that is a love that can sometimes never be recovered when you're making that journey to the United States and when you're leaving your children for such a long time at such a young age. But she did it all in hopes of a better future. So to put in perspective the journey that these immigrants have to take when traveling La Bestia is first they go to Ixtepec, then Medias Aguas, then Tierra Blanca, and then to Orizaba, 
then to Mexico City, and then Lecheria Station, to Irapuato, San Luis Potosi, and then to Monterrey. So these are all of the stations that they have to get to just to get to the American border. Now, along the way, there is dangers of getting robbed, of getting sexually harassed, you know, of getting killed, of getting thrown off of La Bestia or the Beast. All of these incredible dangers are what every single one of these immigrants face when they decide to come and travel on this train in hopes um, of making it to the United States. Due to thousands of migrants crossing the border, Mexican Immigration Form BETA, B-E-T-A, a mobile humanitarian unit that provides water, medical aid, and information to migrants in need without enforcing the law. As the migrants start approaching the U.S. border, they will stop at Coatzacoalcos, Mexico, 1,038 miles from the U.S. border, to bathe and sleep at a place called the House of Migrants, which is a privately run shelter situated near the train tracks where La Bastilla runs. So this is a ground before they head north. So according, according to Mimo Ramirez Garduza, founder of the House of Immigrants, or the House of Migrants, I'm sorry, Mexico is the passage of death. So it's really, really, really dangerous for these migrants traveling to the United States to go through Mexico. Mexico is the path of death for you. The train can be your best friend because it will help you to travel. Pero puede ser tu peor enemigo, te puede matar. Estados Unidos no es el paso de la muerte. Estados Unidos es la muerte misma. En la frontera, en el día, hay temperaturas de 50 hasta 65 grados. Y esta garrafa no te va a aguantar. Ni para tres días en camino. Está comprobadísimo que de cada 100 en la frontera mueren de entre 10 a más de 20. Aquí a lo mejor muchos van a morir. Muchos de aquí no van a volver a ver a su familia. Muchos de aquí no van a volver a su tierra. Porque van a morir en el camino. Ahora hermanos, ¿quién de aquí quisiera realmente llegar a Estados Unidos? Levante la mano. Mr. Ramirez is not only warning the migrants that Mexico is a very dangerous place to travel through, but rather the whole journey from here on out, getting to the U.S. border, is extremely dangerous. The heat and the deserts, the walking to the U.S. border for numerous days at a time without food or water. He basically said that many of those people in the crowd that he was speaking to would not make it and they would not live to see their family and friends. And then he final finalized the statement by asking, okay, who wants to make it to the United States? And that's when, you know, everybody was raising their hands and cheering. And it just exemplified that these migrants thought that it was worth it to risk their lives for a better future for themselves and for their families back home. Can you imagine the courage that it takes to embark on that journey? At this particular resting place, the camera crew actually met Olga and Freddie Anderson from Barajiro, Honduras, uh, who were both nine years old. They had not been home in 20 days, and Olga hadn't seen her mom in three years and hoped to reunite with her in Minnesota, while Freddie was trying to reunite with his father. So Olga aspired to be playing in the snow in the United States and had aspirations of being a doctor. So it was these kind of stories within the documentary that were so heartfelt regarding these young and ambitious children that are just coming to the United States, you know, for a better future. 
And then there are stories that really put in perspective how dangerous this journey actually is. For example, a young boy, 13 years old from Mexico named Eloy, embarked on a journey to the United States to study. But one month after he left home, his body was found in the Arizona desert. He was accompanied by his cousin Rosario, who was 16 years old at the time, and whose body was recovered shortly after, where his DNA was confirmed by the Bureau of Migrant Affairs in Puebla, Mexico. Rosario was on a journey to reunite with his father, who was currently living in North Carolina. Without giving away the rest of the documentary, there was numerous stories similar to the ones that I have just talked about, along with the continuation of Kevin and Fito's journey and the other migrants that they met on their way to the United States. But really, this documentary was quite riveting, and it really delved deep into the heart of the so-called American dream and the repercussions at stake when making the journey to the United States in hopes of prosperity and hopes of protection and freedom. This documentary left me with few questions that I want everybody to think about. Would this dangerous and uncertain journey be worth the rewards of reaching the United States? Would the sacrifice of family times be compensated by the prospect of a better future? How can we do our part to ensure that immigrants are safe from harm? What can we do as a nation that supports human rights to assist in the communities outside of our nation that are dealing with corruption, hunger, poverty, harassment? How can we better our immigration system? These are all really prevalent questions and ones that I have been oftentimes thinking about, um, especially nowadays, and I just wanted to relay those questions to you and really have you think about this documentary and watch it on your own time. It truly is heartfelt and it's really eye-opening. So that's just a little bit about which way home. Now you will be listening to an interview that I had with Catalina Velarde. She is a lawyer here in Kansas City, Missouri, and I had the wonderful opportunity of speaking to her about immigration law and about a lot of the questions that I had. So she addressed those completely, and I really recommend that you listen to this interview to hear a little bit about her backstory, about her involvement in immigration law, and about any of the questions that you may have regarding immigration in general. All right. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. I'm really excited to talk about this because it's a really interesting topic of mine and I'm putting together this podcast in hopes that I can enlighten other people on um, this information so we can just get started to interview questions. But before we get to the first one, why don't you tell us your name and a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Catalina Velarde. I am uh, an attorney here in the Kansas City metropolitan area. Um, I work, uh, mainly my focus is serving um, immigrant clients, so Spanish-speaking clients. Um, for a long time, it was mostly in the area of immigration. Now it's also in the area of family law uh, and mediation and uh, serving also as a guardian ad litem in divorce and guardianship cases. Um, uh, since I am a Spanish speaker and an immigrant myself, um, you know, born in Mexico to Mexican parents, I understand uh, the community. So that's why I uh, seek to serve them. That's amazing. Um, my family, my grandparents are from Cuba, actually. Awesome. So, yeah. So he wrote a whole book and 
I speak Spanish pretty conversationally. I mean, I'm not fluent. I think I'm a little more than conversational, but mainly because of my grandparents and my tita. (laughs) But um, we'll just get started. And I also, that was a really interesting introduction. So I may have a couple questions if you don't mind. You don't have to answer any of these if you don't feel comfortable, but we'll just go through them. Of course. So what do you think about the current immigration process in the United States? Well, um, that's, that's quite a big question. So the, the immigration process has long been a very uh, convoluted process in the United States. So the main immigration law that is sort of the, the basis for everything, everything that happens in terms of immigration is a law that was um, enacted in 1965, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. So that's been the baseline. And then on on top of that, there's been other, uh, other reforms and regulations and other things that, but that's, that's kind of the baseline. So if you, if you think back to what that time was in the United States and, um, you know, the racial tensions and, and relations that were, uh, that the country was dealing with at that time, you can kind of see how, um, how that would have already started immigration law from kind of a, a strained uh, point. So it's, um, it's, it's something that, that I think needs to be uh, reevaluated and, and looked at because we're, I think we've just been trying to pile on different, um, different kind of uh, band-aid fixes or processes on something that that really needs to be uh, you know from a better foundation to begin with. And uh, just for listeners or for any purpose can you explain a little bit you don't have to go in depth but of what you know is the current immigration process of how to get to the U.S. and those kind of stipulations? Well, I actually give presentations on this to community groups all of the time because um, unless you are a recent immigrant, uh, you probably don't really know a lot of what the process is or what it takes to um, to come to the United States on any sort of basis, tourist, uh, student, or whether you want to come in uh, to, to reunify with your family. So, uh, you know, and for most uh, for a lot of families here in the United States, if their history of immigration was before 1965, and you know we're just talking a couple of generations, you know anybody who was whose uh, family history in the United States goes back further than that, um, that you know obviously they were dealing with very different circumstances. Um, you know a lot of people, uh, you know sometimes like to when when um, when looking at at immigrants and 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 uh, asking the question, well, you know, why didn't why didn't so so and so, um, you know, try to become a U.S. citizen? Why didn't you know they had all this time? Why didn't why didn't they fix their status or anything like that? Um, you know, or you know, my uh, my ancestors t- came here came here legally. Uh, you know, that really expresses a misunderstanding of of the processes that it takes. Um, because you know anybody who was whose family history dates from before all these laws you know they say they came here legally but really there wasn't a legal process in the sense of what we talk about currently you know it was just a matter of 
you know, arriving, uh, you know, possibly being quarantined if you if you had some sort of communicable disease at the time, and then there really wasn't it, there really weren't a, many other um, requirements or as uh, as many hurdles as as what we talk about today. But the current process is is very uh, very complicated, um, and and there are um, different different wait times and different lines. Uh, when I talk about this to community folks, I discuss it as um, I talk about it as, as uh, sort of like different lines in a in a supermarket, where um, where uh, you know depending on who who is petitioning for which kind of family member, it can be an entirely entirely different process. So um, for some for some people, um, it, you know they can they can. In essence, emigrate uh, quite quickly, but for some people, the wait times can be very, very, very many years. Um, let me see if I can pull up a quick, a quick example of, of what this is like. So, all right. So, um, so for example, these are some of some of the wait times uh, for different types of immigrant categories, and you, um, for those listeners, I'll try to explain this, um, that we divide, we divide uh, categories into, again, who's petitioning for whom, you know, is this a U.S. citizen spouse petitioning for their spouse? Is this a U.S. citizen petitioning for their parent? Is this a U.S. citizen petitioning for their child? If the U.S. citizen is petitioning for their child, how old is their child? Is their child married? Is this a permanent resident petitioning for their spouse or permanent resident petitioning for their um, their uh, child. So, you know, already we're splitting this into so many different branches. And then we also split, um, depending on who, where these people, what countries um, the immigrant is, is from. So, for example, we have uh, certain countries that have obviously a lot of, a lot of immigration coming to the United States. And, uh, for example, China and India, that I mean, that's just basically a numbers game. Obviously, you're going to have a lot of people seeking to immigrate when, when you have over a billion people in those countries to begin with. And then, you know, with Mexico, obviously the, the immigration flow is natural there because it's a neighboring country. So it's, it's to be expected. So, uh, for example, somebody who is, um, who is a, a U.S. citizen uh, petitioning for, um, for their, uh, older child if the child is from you know France then right now the wait time is for people who filed their paperwork in 2014 uh, but if you're from Mexico your wait time is right now for people who filed in 1997 so that's a huge 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 difference in many years so again when, when people say well you know they had all this time why didn't they fix their status well you know maybe they just straight up could not have so you bring up a really interesting point because I've watched, um, and I'm sorry, I keep on moving. I'm That's just right. trying to find an internet connection, but you, you bring up a really interesting point because I watched this debate on Intelligence Squared and it was, and it was one of the questions that I have for you actually, and is, is should uh, DACA recipients receive citizenship? And the two that were 
for the motion actually talked about the visa process. And when I was listening to it, I wasn't fully grasping the idea because of exactly what you said. It varies depending on who comes from what country. And they mentioned some people were waiting for their visas from 1995. And I was like, how is that possible when there's some people that are getting their visas so much sooner? And it is for that very reason. So that is exactly what I wanted to clear up. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, so the reason some of these countries are split up is because, again, back, back you know, many decades ago, um, somebody somewhere decided that no one country could consume all the visas. Because normally visas, how they're processed, is basically, you know, sort of by, by your order in line, you know, mm -hmm. by, your, by your time in the queue. But someone somewhere decided that we couldn't have any one country mm -hmm. taking up all the visas. In, in any one year because these visas are limited okay, so so we decided that no one country could take more than seven percent of the visas mm -hmm. so again you're talking you know a country like china okay. or a country like Definitely india that's um you know seven percent uh limit limiting them only to seven percent i mean that's you're again you're causing this insane backlog that that again uh, let me let me show you a little bit of, of how it, it turns out to be so um if if you're limiting um if you're limiting people only to like seven percent um just like look at from mexico you've got you know over like 1.2 million people from mexico waiting in line and what this means is that you know where somebody in a normal you know in who's not from Mexico might only be waiting 10 years somebody from Mexico might be waiting half a century mm -hmm. so I mean is, is that realistic is that realistic for somebody to um to wait 50 60 years to reunify with their child with their parents with their sibling in that seven percent ceiling has that been standard for years now or it yeah. has been okay because Many again years. that that debate was in 2016 so that would make sense that it was kind of the a same. lot yeah so like so. these are these are the limits so um you know a u.s citizen who's petitioning for their for their unmarried son or daughter who's over 21 only 23,400 of those can be processed any one year that's for the whole world wow wow that really does create a major backlog it does so I think that leads us to our next question. Uh, should there be a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients? You obviously can twist this question however you would feel right about doing so, but that is just a question, again, from the Intelligence Square debate, and I found it really interesting. Sure. So um, when talking about um, DACAs, um, so what DACA means is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So uh, let's take the first part of it, Deferred Action. So Deferred Action is, um, is like prosecutorial discretion. This is, some, this is a principle that's, that's existed in, in law, uh, you know, just normal criminal law where, you know, a prosecutor can decline not to prosecute a, a certain case, you know, accepting like, you know, we, we, might have enough evidence to prosecute, but is it really is it really worth it when you when you weigh everything out? Um, 
so in, as far as immigration law, deferred action is also something that's been that's existed for a long time. And actually, one of the most famous cases of somebody getting deferred action was actually John Lennon from the Beatles. So he had come in on a, on a tourist visa and he had actually overstayed. So he was actually, you know, should have been deported. Um, but his his attorney um, it found out that there was this process that, you know, immigration authorities could basically decide to like, eh, we'll just not, not really concern ourselves with, with you. Like you're not, you're not that, uh, you're not really worth it to try and like, try to deport. So John, John Lennon was one of the first people to actually get deferred action. At that point in immigration law, the process was kind of, you know, like it was used, but it was kind of kept under, under the radar. So um, since then, uh, immigration authorities have used deferred action in different, um, in different situations. Um, like for example, they've used it for uh, victims uh, of like severe um, domestic abuse. Or for example, they've used it in the case of like natural disasters where I think uh, during Hurricane Katrina when there were like a bunch of international students who couldn't continue going to school because obviously there was no way to, to do so, um, the United States granted them deferred action because if you're an international student and you're not going to school, technically you're in violation of your, of your status. So again, this, is, this, this principle has been used um, at many different at many different points, so what what happened um, uh, when uh, with President Obama's creation of the DACA, he basically took a, a principle that already existed, and he basically said, you know, instead of just having everybody just kind of piecemeal, like one, you know, on an individual basis, ask for deferred action, and us having to decide like individually, um, why don't we just kind of set some standard criteria that if you meet, you're eligible for deferred action. And the criteria is actually pretty high. You know, you have to have been in the United States before you were 16. Uh, you have to have a pretty clear, pretty clean record, no felonies, uh, no more than three misdemeanors of any type. And if you have certain types of misdemeanors, you're disqualified. So any misdemeanor that has to do with, with drugs or um, sexual violence or domestic violence or even a DUI, done. Like you can't qualify for DACA. You have to have met certain educational standards, have to have been in, in high school or completed high school. So again, you're, we're, we're already setting the, the mark pretty, pretty high and, and you know, a lot of young men and women applied for this program and have, you know, held, held that standard. So, you know, it really is a question of, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks talk about, uh, you know, what kind of people do we want to allow to immigrate? I mean, we're already, with folks that are in the DACA program, we're already, um, you know, uh, we've already got a group of people right there that have that have met a pretty significant standard, and uh, DACA um, DACA recipients have been uh, constantly um, shown that that when they do receive DACA, you know they increase their income, they purchase homes, their uh, their entrepreneurial rate is like twice the national average. So, so why why would we not want mm -hmm. these folks? And then to add on to one of the points that you made um, is about John Lennon was 
the enforcement, the problem of enforcement here in the US. And so those who are arguing against the motion on this question for Intelligence Squared actually said, our main problem here in the United States is not necessarily that we need to be granting citizenship, but rather like we need to be better at enforcing our policies. What do you think about that statement? Um, ooh, well, I mean, enforcement is, is also just a whole different, uh, whole different discussion in it, in itself. Um, um, I think, uh, you know, enforcement is, is certainly, um, difficult at times just on the numbers, um, because of if, if you kind of consider the, the presumed number of 11 million persons who are uh, undocumented. I mean, that's, that's quite a, quite a lot to, to enforce, but then again, you know, you have to, you have to take a look at um, when, when enforcement happens again, is it, is, is it pursuing um, uh, people who, who kind of like the DACA's have, have really not, um, uh, you know, not committed, you know, significant felonies or the like, and really their, their only fault is, is an, as a civil fault and administrative fault of not having the, the lawful immigration status. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. It is. Yeah. I just, I found that an interesting point because it was so radically different from those who were arguing for the motion that I was like, that is a very odd way of countering their emotion, but I found it interesting. Okay, we can move on to the next question. Sure. So what are the obstacles of those who you have represented? Um, God, I mean, it, it kind of really depends on, on <clears throat> the type of case that it is. Um, for example, when you're talking about representing um, asylum seekers, uh, mm -hmm. that's certainly something that's been in the news a lot lately with, um, with a lot of, um, influx of asylum seekers from, from the Central American countries. Um, um, much of the challenges that they're facing is that, um, sometimes th that I, the current asylum law does not, um, does not quite seem to recognize the realities of current, uh, the current situation in those countries. And, and uh, what I mean is the following. So um, the, um, to, in order to be eligible for asylum, there's, there's certain elements that you, have to, that you have to meet. For example, you have to have been um, harmed, you have to have been persecuted, so harmed, uh, or if you weren't actually harmed in the past, there has to be a real fear that you're gonna be harmed in the future. Um, you have to be harmed on account of a specific reason. So, um, you know, thinking to the, you know, the seminal example of persecution for asylum would be something like Nazi persecution of the Jews. So, you know, persecution on account of their religion. Um, so you have not all reasons for persecution are valid asylum reasons. So you have to be persecuted on account of your race, your religion, your national origin, your political opinion, or you know, sort of our catch-all category. But the, the gist is that you have to be persecuted because of something that you can't change or should not have to change. So, you know, you can't change your race. You're sh you should not have to change your religion just because somebody is, is persecuting you over it. 
So, you know, for example, you know, you can't change your national origin, but that's what it is. You know, you can't change your, you should not have to change your political opinion. Or for example, if you're being persecuted on gender, can't change your gender. Or if you're being persecuted on be because you're LGBT, should not have to change, can't change. Uh, so, so the same idea. So, but the reality in, in a lot of Central American countries is that there is um, significant persecution um, of communities by, um, you know, by gangs, uh, by, you know, sort of these, these broken down uh, governmental structures. Um, but, you know, it's not always clear or it's not always evident whether a gang is, you know, does the gang want to hurt you because you're, because of your race? Not exactly. Do they want to hurt you because of your political opinion? Not exactly. But I mean, is it a very real chance that they'll, that they'll do something to you if you don't do what they say? Yes. Uh, a lot of these Central American countries, I mean, they have, um, they have murder rates that are high as about any place that's not an actual war zone. Um, so, so these are, these are very real fears that, that people, um, that people have, but it's, you know, like, how are you gonna, how are you gonna put that into the peg of what asylum law is right now? It's really interesting. I have one more question on the DACA situation, just for my sure. own clarity. And I just read back in my notes from some of the sources that I read. And I just want to clarify, um, DACA recipients do pay home and property and income tax, or they pay property and income tax. I think sure. that's a common misconception that I just wanted to clear up. Um, when I was watching the debate as well, they addressed this, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about it for my own clarity and for those who are listening. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, immigrants, immigrants pay taxes, even, even folks that are, um, that are not just DACA recipients. Um, so with DACA recipients, um, DACA recipients have um, lawful work authorization and, and um, social security numbers. So, you know, payroll taxes being deducted. And again, you know, kind of like I mentioned, a lot of them have bought their, their homes. A lot of them have bought their first vehicles. A lot of them have started businesses. So all of those, that's just taxes, taxes, taxes. And same thing with, with uh, the undocumented immigrant population that's not, not DACA. Same thing, you know, they pay property taxes, they pay sales taxes. Um, a lot of, you know, their employers do deduct payroll taxes as well. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, that's, it just, it just goes and it's not a benefit that, that the immigrant recovers. Right. And that's, that leads me kind of to my next point. And they don't receive federal benefits like no. those more citizens, correct? No, that's that's a very very common misconception is that immigrants just come here to take advantage of of you know, social welfare and you know I've heard all sorts of things right. that you know every immigrant gets such and such money and like free this free that no no you are you are ineligible for for federal benefits if you are an undocumented immigrant. Thank you for that clarity. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Right, we can go on to the next question, which is how can we educate others on the issues of immigration in the US? This is kind of a broad question, but again, you can interpret it how you will. I mean, I think it's it's really a matter of, of sharing stories and getting people to, um, 
you know, you know, I guess, how do you, how do you get people to, to be more compassionate? I think that's, mm -hmm. that's a big question, but um, I think if you, again, you know, kind of like I was mentioning at the beginning, a lot of people who, who already have, um, you know, multi-generational history in the United States, uh, you know, feel so removed from the immigrant experience, you know, they might say, oh yeah, you know, my great grandpa came from Italy, but I mean, it, that's, that's all we know when we know historically that immigrants from, even from, you know, places like Italy and places like Ireland suffered their own um, racism, you know, during their time. So again, you know, getting, you know, getting people back to, to that acknowledgement and, and getting people to, to understand that, that really, you know, there's, there's no person in this world who, who doesn't want to seek a better life for themselves and for their, and for their family members and just sharing the stories and teaching people how difficult it is to, you know, to go through the legal process. It, it, I mean, it really is just education and getting people to, to sit down and, and listen. And then how, this is more of a, a personal question. So how has your personal heritage impacted the person that you are today or your career or anything that kind of has inspired you throughout your career? Sure, so, um, so like I said, I'm an immigrant myself. I was born in Mexico and, uh, but um, the, you know, my immigration story is that my grandpa was actually born in, uh, in the United States, was born in Colorado because his parents were uh, railroad workers. So grandpa was a US citizen and that's how eventually I, you know, had a pathway to, to legal status as well. So um, it's sort of, sort of there, but for the grace of God go I. I mean, if, if that hadn't happened, I mean, I had no control over, over you know, my grandpa's birth. Uh, uh, so, you know, if not for, if not for that, where, where, would, I, where would I be? Um, so, so that's just how, um, you know, I just have to, I just have to keep that in mind. So understanding that, understanding my own story, uh, certainly understanding my, my language, that's, uh, you know, and, and, and even though I, I grew up in Texas, I moved to Missouri when I was, when I was about 11 or so. And even that was just sort of like complete, like cultural alienation, like a culture shock that that kind of made me want to help my community more. Yeah, that's really amazing. And kind of uh, along the same lines of that question, what have been some of the obstacles that you have faced in your life pertaining to your heritage here in the United States? I've been pretty fortunate myself. I'm, I'm pretty white passing as far like you wouldn't I native Spanish speaker fluent Spanish speaker but unless you hear me speak Spanish you if you see me down the street here in Kansas City you wouldn't really you wouldn't really know it um, but my uh, my immediate family members I mean if you see me with my family we definitely look like a like a Latino family um, yeah so they've I know that they've encountered more direct racism than than I have um, I know that even when, when, when my parents moved, moved to Missouri, they, um, they, um, you know, they suffered difficulties with, uh, people refusing to rent to them. 
I mean, my, my little sister was told um, in high school by a teacher uh, that she was, uh, you know, when my sister announced that she was going to a good college, a teacher actually told her like, well, you're just taking a white boy's spot. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, gosh. yeah, a teacher at, at school. So, um, so I've been, I've been like, I've, I've, um, I had a recent experience where, 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 uh, you know, someone sort of indicated that, that, uh, you know, that they didn't believe that the people who were not born in, in the United States did not merit citizenship. And that I, you know, I've never felt some, you know, sort of a, a such a forefront attack. Uh, so I felt that very heavily, but, but I mean, other than that, I, I personally have been pretty fortunate, but I, you know, just obviously with my, with the experiences that my immediate family has, has suffered, uh, you know, certainly has had an impact. Very nice. So I think this is kind of more of a general question uh, because we've answered a lot just through our conversation. And it's just how can we make change, you know, within the immigration system and just in general? Well, there's certainly, um, there's certainly a lot of change. Um, you know, immigration law is a federal level law. So to change that law that I was telling you about, the one from the 1960s, right. that straight up is going to take legislative action, you know, mm -hmm. from the U.S. from the U.S. Congress. So that's 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 one thing. Uh, you know, certainly there's there's, you know, every so often there's a push to try and change change things like that, you know, if if uh, if uh, a legalization path is going to open up for DACA um, recipients, it's going to have to come from that. Um, so there's you know there's that high level action, but just because that's federal, you know, we shouldn't think that there's not something that can be done more at our state and local levels. There are always things that can be that can be done even at, at your local level. <clears throat> you can always contact, um, you know, look at your city. Look at whether your city has any um, ordinances or resolutions that talk about um, their behavior towards towards immigrants. You can take a look at your uh, local police department and see how they how they um, serve um, you know non citizen communities. Like you know, do they offer resources uh, you know like language access resources that help immigrant communities build trust with with the police department so that they report crimes uh, in, you know, so that the police is aware of when the immigrant communities are being abused. You know, are there local, um, are there local laws that can be put in place? Like for example, um, you know, several states allow um, persons who are not citizens of the United States to have a driver's license or to have some sort of ID. I mean, you know, do we want, do we want licensed drivers, you know, licensed drivers, or do we not want licensed drivers? You know, so there's all sorts of things that we could look at that are not at that huge, you know, federal congressional level that can help um, that can help build a better community at your level. And then I have one more question that's kind of widely talked about and slightly controversial, but it's the idea that you know, undocumented people who come to the U.S take, you know, American citizen jobs, uh, particularly those on the lower echelon of, you know, the economic scale. Mm -hmm. What, um, yes, what is your uh, conception of this idea? 
Um, well, I mean, I think um, the, the, you know, the, the jobs that, that immigrant communities tend to fill are either like on the lower end of the spectrum or the higher end of the spectrum, either the, the lower unspecialized skills and the, or the higher, you know, technical or, you know, STEM type, type skills. Um, you know, and usually, obviously, there's like a lot more demonization of the lower, uh, lower skills. But I mean, if you if you talk, there's been some some documentaries, and if if you talk to the um, the farmers, the people that employ, for example, migrant farm work labor, the I mean, they're they talk about how they need that workforce. I mean, and that is the workforce that puts food on our tables. I would love to watch one of those documentaries. So if you have the link or at any point in time, just email I'll, them. I'll send you some stuff to watch for sure. Perfect. I think you have completely answered everything to the utmost and I really appreciate your time. Well, anytime, yeah. If and you come up with some question later, just let me know. Thank you. everyone, continuing our topic on immigration today, we will be discussing DACA, which is formerly known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. DACA grants undocumented people who came to America as children the right to live, work, and study in the U.S. temporarily. The DACA program was created by the Obama administration on June 15, 2012, and granted around 689,800 temporary residents, according to the Immigration Services, as of September 4, 2017. But the issue that we run into present day is the possible eradication of the DACA program from the Trump administration. One of President Trump's main campaign points in 2016 was the dissemination of the DACA program, saying, and I quote, we will immediately terminate President Obama's two illegal executive amnesties in which he defied federal law and the Constitution to give amnesty to approximately 5 million illegal immigrants. Now this quote was followed by another quote that President Trump said, anyone who came here illegally is subject to deportation. This is what it means to have laws. So these two quotes came from a New York Times podcast, and this particular podcast was really interesting, and it was done by Adam Littak, who covers pertinent information about the Supreme Court in the New York Times. Continuing our conversation, according to President Trump, and I quote, DACA was created through an executive branch memorandum after President Obama said repeatedly that it was illegal for him to do so unilaterally and despite the fact that Congress affirmatively rejected the proposal on multiple occasions. The constitutionality of this de facto amnesty program created by the Obama administration has been widely questioned since its inception. The fact remains that under DACA, hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens continue to remain in our country in violation of the laws passed by Congress and to take jobs Americans need now more than ever. Ultimately, DACA is not a long-term solution for anyone, and if Congress wants to provide a permanent solution for these illegal aliens, it needs to step in to reform our immigration laws and to prove that the cornerstone of our democracy is that presidents cannot legislate 
with a pen and a phone. So we can see that there was a definite shift in policy under the Trump administration regarding this DACA program. And the public would assume that the majority conservative Supreme Court would support President Trump's uh, idea of the eradication of this program, but it was not so. As of recently, Chief Justice John Roberts prevented around 700,000 DACA recipients from getting deported on a 5-4 to four Supreme Court decision ruled against President Trump's decision to eradicate DACA. So just for quick clarification, there are nine people part of the Supreme Court, five of them which are conservative and four of them which are Democrats, and two of which Trump actually appointed himself. This information was according to the New York Times podcast. But according to the Supreme Court Justice Roberts, the Trump administration failed to address legitimate reasons to eliminate the DACA program, which he claimed violated the Administrative Procedure Act, which governs the process by which federal agencies develop and issue regulations. So this is according to the EPA.gov and National Law Journal. Following along on the same accord, um, Chief Justice Roberts said that these DACA recipients have grown to rely on this program, which is formerly known as Reliance Interest. Since this decision has further protected the Dreamers and the recent federal law that now protects the LGBTQ worker rights, President Trump has made a remark saying that those rulings were, and I quote, shotgun blasts into the faces of people that are proud to call themselves Republicans or conservatives. So as you can see, uh, this was a shock to President Trump. And it was quite a shock, I'm sure, to um, a lot of the Republican supporters here in the United States. With all this information, where do you stand? What direction do you see our country moving in? Considering conservative Judge Roberts ruled against President Trump's proposal to eradicate the DACA program, is this the beginning of a path to citizenship for the Dreamers? This leads us to our next topic. Should DACA recipients be granted citizenship? Hi everyone, today we will delve into a very big question. Should DACA recipients be granted citizenship? So I watched a very interesting debate on Intelligence Squared from 2016 about this particular topic and it really made me think. Many of us know and are friends or family with those who are DACA recipients and a life without them may seem very out of the ordinary. So I'm going to summarize the points by each debater today. Representing for the motion was Mary Elena Hincapié, who is an executive director of the National Immigration Center, and her partner Angela Kelly, an executive director of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Representing against the motion was Stephen Camarota, director of research at the Center for Immigration Studies, and his partner Rich Lowry, editor of the National Review. So delving into the for the motion side, Mary Elena Hincapié and Angela Kelly split their argument into three parts. Number one, who are the undocumented? Number two, why are they undocumented? And number three, what are the solutions? So these women in favor of the motion address the first question by stating that 72 to 88% of people support a pathway to citizenship for undocumented citizens. They said that they are not accidental tourists, and many of these undocumented citizens have lived here for more than 20 years. For example, in 2014, the average adult lived here for 13 years and a half, and if they had a citizen child, for 15 years or more. According to Ms. Kelly, they aren't spending an extra day at Disney. When people say send them home, they are missing the point, because they are home. 
Undocumented people make up 7 million workers here in the United States, which is 5% of our workforce. They own a home, they pay property tax and income tax. So why are they undocumented? According to Hincapié and Kelly, the U.S. immigration system is complex and hasn't been updated since 1990. There are only visas for workers and 5,000 legal pathways for thousands of immigrants who want to come to the United States legally. There is also a big visa backlog. For example, the adult unmarried sons and daughters that filed for a visa in 1995 are just now receiving them present day. Also, if you've been in the United States for more than six months illegally, you have to wait another 10 years before legally entering once again, which convinces many of the undocumented citizens to stay without documents. Many DACA recipients do not know any other home besides the United States. According to Hincapié, 17 million people here in the United States live in families with some relation to immigration, whether that be a direct family member or a distant relative. The local and state government net from undocumented citizens reaches $11.6 billion a year. Hincapié and Kelly say that we are a nation of laws and will benefit economically from granting citizenship to these undocumented people. Not to mention, it is morally right for us to grant citizenship for many of these undocumented citizens who live in constant fear of deportation. In addition, the government grants undocumented citizens a tax ID number, but not a national security number, so they have no way to report their income or their interests. According to Kelly and Hincapié, immigration reform would increase the GDP congressional budget. Those who receive permanent stay permits, or ITAP, at the state and local level would pay 8% of their income tax, more than the top 1% of our population. These undocumented citizens were not offered Obamacare or federal public benefits, but they do put $13 billion a year into the Social Security and Medicaid system that they don't have access to. From 96 to 2003, they were responsible for $96 billion in income for the United States. So what's the proposal? What do Hincapié and Kelly propose to benefit the U.S. economy and to also benefit undocumented citizens? Well, according to the Congressional Budget Office, immigration reform would increase the GDP 3.3% in 10 years by granting citizenship to these undocumented people. According to Kelly, we can go into school and churches and watch people get ferreted out, which is not the America we want to live in. The U.S. either spends $17 billion a year on laws that do not work, or grant a pathway to citizenship to those who are already contributing to society by getting educated, paying taxes, clearing background checks, and learning to become the best Americans that we will ever have. According to those on the opposing side of the motion, Stephen Camarota and Rich Lowry, this argument isn't about granting amnesty or the fact that many of these illegal immigrants work and pay their dues. Lowry said you can agree with all of those things and still not agree with giving illegal immigrants the most prized possession in the world. This solution has been tried before. In 1986, the United States granted amnesty and citizenship for 3 million illegal immigrants in this country, which was supposed to solve the problem, but it didn't, said Lowry. We actually have four times as many illegal immigrants in this country now, and it would only increase if we promoted the resolution for supporting the motion. Camarota and Lowry said that many illegal immigrants do not have a 10th grade education, 
but there's a large population of Americans that also have the same amount of education. Therefore, the argument that illegal immigrants take the jobs that Americans do not want is a moot point because 13 million American citizens who do not have a high school education also need those lower echelon jobs. According to Lowry, 7 to 8 million illegal immigrants have jobs who are competing with poor Americans, which directly affects those who are the most vulnerable part of the labor market. Of American high school dropouts, 42% of them have a job right now. And according to the National Academies of Science, people who come to the United States without a high school education are major fiscal drains to the United States economy and will cost trillions of dollars in taxpayers' money. In addition, Lowry says there's no American capacity to review 10 million applications, which would ultimately create a backlog or would force the administration to review the applications less stringently, potentially admitting those with the criminal record. Lowry and Camarota argue that this is a policy enforcement problem rather than anything else. 900,000 illegal immigrants were said to be deported, but nothing was actually imposed. 50% of immigrants are using public welfare not because they came for welfare, but rather it reflects their education and their family size and how that affects their income. Most of them are not earning enough to pay federal income tax, let alone contribute to society because they do not have that high school education. So what do Camarota and Lowry propose? Well, they propose having better enforcement on the border, not by creating a wall, but by increasing accountability. For example, there were 100,000 employers that hired illegal immigrants, but maybe 50% of them got arrested in 2014. So Camarota and Lowry say, let's restore the law, and by doing so, we can fix the immigration system that we currently have. As I stated before, this debate was very interesting and very prevalent, and I do recommend that everybody go on Intelligence Squared and watch it for themselves. It's called Give Undocumented Immigrants a Path to Citizenship. Both teams for and against the motion brought very prevalent uh, statistical and analytical data to the table that really made the audience think, you know, on both sides of the story. And I think this just reemphasizes the importance of reeducating ourselves and our family and our friends on topics that are really affecting society today. So again, I really recommend that you go on Intelligence Squared and watch this debate. And I hope you enjoyed the summary. Now you will be listening to an interview that I had with Luis Diego Alanis. He's one of my really good friends from school. We, we went to high school together and he is a DACA recipient and he's a wonderful person and I've always been really interested in his story. So I hope that you will listen to this interview, that you'll hear his backstory, what he's done here in the United States, how his heritage has impacted him, and I know that you'll really enjoy it. So please give it a listen. Welcome back, everybody. Again, I'm Olivia Sabatez, and today we will be talking about immigration, and we have a special guest with us, Luis Diego Alanis. Say hi to everybody. Hello there. Thanks for having me, Olivia. So, Luis, or I like to call him Diego, where are you originally from? Originally, I was born in 
Guajumbaro, Michoacan, Mexico, which is a small town uh, about two hours west of Mexico City, down in the southwest corner. Awesome. And how long have you been in the United States? Uh, so I got here right when I turned four, and that was back in 2005, I believe. So I've been here for about 16 or 17 years. And what is your experience living in the United States? For the most part, I would say, I mean, I don't really have anything else to compare it with because I've only lived in the United States. So this is all I know. Um, and I mean, I like it for the most part. Do you think there should be a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients? Uh, for sure. Uh, I say that because I myself am a DACA recipient. So, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, the U.S. is all I've ever known. Uh, I was raised here. Um, I very much consider myself to be an American. And so I think it would, I mean, it, it makes sense uh, for DACA recipients to have a pathway to citizenship. Have you faced any obstacles by being an immigrant here in the United States? Uh, yes. I mean, for one, the fact that you're not really fully accepted by um, all of society, uh, even though, like, you've been raised here, as I mentioned. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest obstacles is that you become isolated by uh, everybody else in, in the community. Um, and I think that really that really plays a big part because um, it affects the way your identity is developing, uh, especially as a as a as an adolescent. Um, so I I mean I think by far um, that's what's impacted me the most being an immigrant is that uh, for a while there in and out of stages in my life there was time where I was isolated from certain groups of peers whether it be at school or soccer or whatever it may be. Um, solely because I was, you know, an immigrant. I wasn't born here in the U.S. And how has your heritage impacted the person that you are today? Um, it's, I mean, I've, I've, I've picked up on the, the, you know, the Mexican culture that uh, my mom raised me with, but also, um, you know, again, I was living here in the U.S. the whole time, so I've picked up on American culture as well. So I've kind of got a, a, a mix of it um, to kind of create my, my own self-identity, my unique uh, persona. You are unique, we love that. Is there a specific person that you admire who has helped you or guided you along in your life? Uh, for sure, I mean, my parents, um, you know, they, they taught me um, a lot of, of the morals that I carry. Um, but then also, you know, they, they taught me like uh, commitment, just a lot of my work ethic, I would say come from my parent comes from my parents. Uh, but as far as navigating um, society, um, and kind of life in the US, uh, I haven't really been able to rely a whole lot on my parents just because they come from a different culture. So they themselves are adapting to it. Um, but I lucky enough, I was able to meet some really close friends whose parents have been here longer and kind of are more familiar with the ropes of society here. Um, and in specific, I would like to shout out the Murguilla family because uh, they really kind of took me under their wing at about the age of uh, 11 or 12. And uh, they, I kind of just been running with them uh, since then. Um, and I've learned quite a lot from them, you know, just from um, 
simple things to more uh, complex things, you know, like dealing with school, dealing with finances, uh, things of that sort. So, yeah, definitely they have uh, had a huge impact on me. That's awesome. We always need someone like that in our lives. What have been some obstacles that you have faced in your life? Um, in relevance to immigration or just in general? Just in general. Um, I mean... It can be about immigration or it can just be about your childhood, growing up here, or what you've done in your life, anything. Yeah, I think right now the, the, the main one that's at the forefront of, of my head is uh, pretty much the, co- the whole college experience uh, has been a little, I would say, a little different for me and, and other DACA students, uh, just for the simple fact that um, we don't qualify for certain like student loans. So like, um, unless you are getting uh, scholarships like to put you through school, um, or you have you know uh, sufficient funding from your family to get through school, um, I think that was that's been one of my biggest obstacles was that you know I, I wanted to invest in, in, in higher education for myself, uh, but I couldn't really do that unless I had scholarships to pay for my school because I don't qualify for you know federal loans and many of the student loans, so it becomes a little difficult to be able to to get through college in that sense. Um, and that's another reason why I think there should be a pathway to citizenship because that citizenship just allows for so many things. Um, and I feel like since DACA recipients are already, you know, raised here in the U.S. and they, they already contribute to the economy so much, um, not only to the economy, but, you know, just in other social factors as well, um, that they should, you know, have the same kind of the same um, privileges as any other uh, any other citizen who was born here um, and just yeah that's pretty much it no of course so how did you come to the United States uh, I mean I was brought here illegally uh, when I was very young uh, I don't remember much of it to be honest I mean I was I had just turned four um, I just I do know that it was illegally is there a particular political figure that you admire and why? I think right now I really admire um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. Um, I just, I don't know, she seems so authentic to me. Um, a lot of her, a lot of what she um, is, you know, stands up for is a lot of what I believe in. Uh, so, I, I mean, I really, really admire her. I feel like uh, she's definitely going to, she's a stepping stone in the change that's to come in, in, in our nation. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I really look up to her. I try to try to keep up with her as much as possible. That's a great role model. And do you think this country is headed towards a future of inclusivity or division? I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I, I definitely see a future of inclusivity in our nation, but I think um, here in the next few years, there's going to be a big, a big division just because, uh, I believe there's a lot of, there's still a lot of ideologies laying in, in, in the roots of our, of our systems, of our nation, uh, that haven't really been addressed and kind of have just been swept under the rug and, and, um, and a lot of people don't think that they're problems, even though, um, there was, you know, there were like, for example, um, I mean, systemic racism, uh, you want to talk about that. Uh, it, it was meant to be ruled out 
with the civil rights bills that were passed in the in the 1960s and 70s, but a lot of it just kind of went covert and kind of has been laying like I like I mentioned like underground kind of uh, it's still been functioning to to keep people uh, kind of oppressed and 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 mainly divided. Um, but I feel like we're definitely going to get to the point where we're going to start addressing these things. We're going to start having conversations about them and kind of uh, move forward as a nation for the better of all our citizens, not just a portion of our citizens. Right. What do you personally plan on doing in the future? So my That's line of work question. is, uh, is or what I'm looking at striving to go into is uh, education. Uh, you know, youth education, specifically as a physical education teacher, uh, probably at the middle school or high school level, and then uh, coaching as well. But I, I mean, I want to be, I want to be involved in in uh, a lot of community work, especially in the community that I grew up in, um, just to you know help people keep keep getting better um, and 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 be the best they can be in 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 their life, and you know, kind of leave the world a better place than we found it. So, yeah. That's amazing. And finally, how do you cope with injustice that envelops our societies? Um, I first... It's a loaded question. Yeah. Um, I think I just kind of let it seep in at first. Uh, you just have to take it for what it is um, and really just process all the feelings that it makes you it makes you have um and don't try to fight the feeling um and then from there you know you start to you find ways to to kind of calm yourself down from from all that those feelings you're you're experiencing or at least this is what I do um and then you know you kind of think of ways in which you could bring change or help bring change or you know just different different things like that is is kind of what I what I do um I try to have conversations with friends about uh certain injustices that that make me feel a certain way uh just so that I can hear somebody else's thoughts on it and I can share my thoughts about it um and see kind of again what needs to be done to bring about some change or does change need to happen just covering it all pretty much well, thank you so much for joining us, Diego. I love your company and I love hearing your story. So we really appreciate it. No, thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure to be on your show today. Thank you all for listening to my very first podcast. I hope you enjoyed and tune in for the second one coming soon.